He's done a great job over the years for us in the ISUSA giving uh, very succinct lectures on uh, this. And he's changing it a little bit this time, um, going to the emerging issues. But he will start off with a brief review of what he's talked about before. So Victor, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm delighted to be here. We're going to jump from the anus to the brain is probably not that much of a leap for some. <laughs> um, so I, I, I did switch things around a little bit this time. Uh, the last time I spoke, I spoke about screening. Should we screen for cognitive impairment? Really, um, I also spoke about should we be doing lumbar punctures on more people? And should we be doing a, a better job with CNS penetrating antiretrovirals? Those may still be very pressing questions for you, but I'm not going to speak about them so much today. But I would encourage you to catch me in the hallway if you'd like to learn a little bit more about that. There are so many emerging issues, it's hard for me to choose which ones uh, to speak about. So I, um, I've mixed them up a little bit. For, for today's talk, I thought I'd speak a little bit about what we, we know about asymptomatic cognitive impairment. So these are, are people without symptoms who, when you test them, they do quite poorly. Um, is that important? Should we care? Then I, I thought I'd speak a little bit about comorbidities because they are quite important in terms of who is cognitively impaired. And then I, my training is in geriatric medicine, and then I'm also trained in dementia. So uh, I, I'm constantly thinking about the aging population and whether they're going to have Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, all these neurodegenerative conditions at either an earlier rate or a more rapid progression. So I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about that, although uh, just to give you the answer earlier, I, I just don't know. So, uh, but I'll tell you what I do know about it. We should start off with a couple questions. I think, uh, so here's the first question. What percentage of new HIV infections in the U.S. occur among patients who are over 50? Start the timer. New infections in the U.S. Okay, people are, are generally well informed, it looks like. The, uh, the next question, HIV patients are at an accelerated risk for Alzheimer's disease. I guess um, I'm kind of given that answer away, but what is your opinion uh, based on interesting knowledge? Good, I, I think a lot of people are quite worried about this, so I think you will be in the consensus here. Although, I'll show you that the data are, are not entirely clear. So let's start off with just a little bit of review of what we're talking about with regard to cognitive disorders in HIV. Um, we're going to go first to another question. Based on a community survey that was completed several years ago, over 1,000 patients, community-dwelling HIV-positive patients, so the patients you're seeing in your clinic, what percentage of these patients have cognitive disorders? Good. So uh, most people are saying about 30 to 40 percent. So it, it's actually a little bit higher than that, and I'll show you the data for that. So we define cognitive impairment in, in today's nomenclature using these terminologies here on your left. 
There's a mild neurocognitive disorder, which is uh, mild in nature in terms of how it's affecting function and how much cognitive impairment there is on testing. And then there's frank dementia, which is quite unfrequent now, uh, less than 5%. We seldom see people progress all the way to dementia, but still exists. And then there's this entity called asymptomatic neurocognitive impairment, which is typically not found in clinics, but in research studies, we find a sizable proportion of patients who don't test well and don't appear to have any symptoms. I'm going to spend most of my time talking about that group. If you look at this uh, kind of schematically, you can see that the dementia portion is actually quite small. And these circles aren't exactly correct, but they do tell you about 50% of the patients in these studies have cognitive impairment, with probably more having HIV uh, asymptomatic impairment than those with mild neurocognitive disorder. And this is based on data that came out of the large charter study here on the, uh, the post-heart side, where about 50% of patients have normal cognition, whereas about half of the patients have uh, some form of cognitive impairment, most of which are in this red, this asymptomatic neurocognitive impairment. And what's quite striking is that you don't see a whole lot of difference in terms of overall cognitive impairment in the two, even though you can tell that the dementia, the severity is much less. There's less uh, dementia than it was. So this should be quite striking to us. And there are a lot of people who will automatically say, well, you're doing testing. Some people will have bad days. You don't sleep well and so forth. But uh, I'm not in favor of that. And, and you can almost disprove that because if you do these exact same tests to people who are HIV negative, about 12 to 15% will follow to some degree of impairment, but nowhere near 50%. So we, we may be over-assuming a little bit, but not to the extent that we're seeing in these data. Some of what you see in clinic may not be so clear as cognitive impairment due to HIV because people tend to think a lot about just the memory. But the most common symptom that we see is concentration and attention, inability to do multiple tasks in a row. So you may find people who can hold the job, but they're terribly inefficient at holding the job. And if you give them two or three tasks to do at the same time, they begin to fail. What's more is you can often see some lower components to this disorder that's overlooked in fact, people can develop Parkinsonian features. And I've had pa patients referred to me because they think they're developing Parkinson's, when in fact there's no idiopathic Parkinson's, but just the Parkinsonism that can occur in people with, with HIV. And then what I think people like to uh, ignore the most is some of these behavioral issues, which are so common in our HIV patients and often thought to be in response to some kind of stressor in life or uh, being chronically ill, probably part of that. But there are also data from imaging studies showing that people who have profound apathy in HIV have smaller areas of the brain that could lead to this drive. So there's probably an anatomic correlate to a lot of these things. So please remember when you're thinking about what happens to the brain that it's a lot more than just cognition, but uh, motor as well as behavioral stuff. The other really challenging thing about trying to estimate how frequent cognitive impairment occurs is that cognitive impairment fluctuates. And as a dementia uh, clinician, when I see fluctuation, I worry a lot about inflammatory disorders. In fact, encephalopathy that we can see with autoimmune disorders or some kind of inflammatory disorders have lots of fluctuation. So it makes me think that the underlying pathogenesis in some of this HIV cognitive impairment could be inflammatory in nature. And I think there's some evidence to support that. But these data may be a little bit difficult to see. They're data from a study I did in Hawaii that was published with the nomenclature in 2007. 
And you can see that there's a sizable number of HIV patients who fluctuated. And this was testing done at three separate episodes over three years. And you can see that some people did seem to have some improvement over the three years. Some had decline and some fluctuated. Even these people who have had improvement or decline could end up over here in subsequent years fluctuating. And, I, and I've seen that. I, I, I have one patient that I recall quite well who's been into cognitive testing three times in the past uh, decade and a half. And in between those times that she seeks cognitive testing, she holds a job. So she had these very large fluctuations in her ability to, to, do, to do work. Um, so I think this makes it very difficult to estimate at any point in time how frequent cognitive impairment is. Uh, you can see these data a little bit in uh, an ACTG study that was published by um, Kevin Robertson, where they put people on antiretrovirals who were either failing antiretrovirals or starting for the first time, and then they looked at cognitive impairment over a course of about a year's time. And even with the, the treatment, they found that a, a good percentage of patients seemed to develop what they called impairment. And they were only doing four tests, so impairment was failure on two of those tests. Excuse me, but it was quite troubling to see some change in cognitive uh, performance in a negative way in people who are starting antiretrovirals. So even with people on treatment, I think that the take-home message here is that there can be some fluctuation. If we were to see that this decline continued to go relentlessly, we would be seeing a picture like Alzheimer's disease. And we really don't see that in our HIV clinics. So I think this is a really important take-home message for your patients. that. We do see progression to dementia, but it's not that common. So many patients will have this irritating inefficiency, concentration problems, with some days that are better than others, but we're not seeing, in large part, this relentless decline that you see in other neurodegenerative disorders. Just that kind of information sometimes is reassuring to patients, although we really need to get to the bottom of why this is occurring and why so many of our patients are having this inefficiency in their ability to, to think. These data are also from the Charter Cohort, and they point to one issue about uh, why this is occurring. The, the probability of having a cognitive diagnosis, you can see, is quite clearly associated with the degree to which you have confounding factors. So these factors include uh, obvious factors like using drugs, drug use, but less commonly thought of confounders such as cerebrovascular disease. So patients who have a tremendous amount of uh, cerebrovascular risk or have had strokes or having white matter lesions on their MRI would be uh, either contributing or confounding. So the risk for having cognitive impairment is tightly linked in the error part to the degree to which you have these comorbid uh, situations or, or illnesses. And what's interesting is in the people who do not have these, you can see a much better correlation with factors that we know from uh, earlier times were correlated to cognitive impairment, that being suppression of viral load and CD4 cell count. But that link is somewhat lost when you start confounding the cases with uh, comorbid illness and, and, uh, and, and things like drug use. So should you care about these asymptomatic patients at all? I, if you've been paying attention, let's take a look. According to this paper uh, of over 1,500 community-dwelling HIV patients, what percentage of patients with cognitive impairment are asymptomatic? What percentage of patients with hand are asymptomatic? You have to do a little math to figure this out. Eighth grade math.
Yes, that's so. Everyone fast eight. They, having taught eighth grade math for a while, I um, I can I can appreciate that somebody can get this done. So yeah, uh, over fifty percent. It's actually about seventy percent if you do the calculations from the paper. So that is really quite shocking. And when people hear that, they say, "Well, you know, why should I care about this? If if seventy percent of the patients who are impaired are asymptomatic." What, what is my role in life anyways? I'm a, I'm a clinician, I'm taking care of patients. What I'm supposed to be doing is improving quality of life. Uh, and and if, if there's no evidence that there's a, an effect on quality of life, why should I care about it? Well, I, I think that the patients may not recognize sometimes that there's a problem. But I think if we look at this a little bit closer, we'll find out that in fact there is a problem. And if you look at the degree to which these asymptomatic patients and symptomatic patients are, are, are failing on cognitive measures, there really isn't a, a lot of difference between the two. Johns Hopkins published these data about uh, four years ago. These data are from our cohort of patients over 60 years of age, showing that, in fact, there's no difference in the degree of cognitive impairment between these two groups. And then the UCSD group has been quite busy looking at driving simulators, and we've done a little bit of this as well. So the question would be, do these asymptomatic patients have difficulty on things like a driving simulator or keeping up with their medications? And the data are quite clear, particularly the data coming from San Diego, which has spent a lot of time trying to understand everyday function. Here, from our data, you can see really no difference in their ability to perform on these tests of everyday function between asymptomatic and symptomatic patients. So probably something that we need to be worried about. These data also from San Diego saying that the patients also have a similar degree of problems with employment uh, based on their battery of whether they would be employable. And then we've looked uh, at the brain imaging using diffusion tensor imaging, which gives you a little bit of an idea of the integrity of the white matter tracts in patients with HIV compared to controls. We find broad areas where the white matter tracts are damaged in HIV, and that this damage correlates quite nicely with the degree to which they can do functional tests, not cognitive tests like the pen and pencil papers neuropsychologists do, but these types of tests where you're trying to do medication compliance and so forth. So we're uh, quite a bit worried about this. Uh, the San Diego people have also looked at asymptomatic impairment to, to see how often will they progress to symptomatic impairment. And if you look at the normals compared to those that are asymptomatic, over a year's time, they're more likely to develop symptomatic disease. So this may also be transient um, so for many patients. And then finally, I'll tell you really a challenge for us. I study patients who are over 60 years of age. I require that when they come in for research study, they bring in a proxy informant, or at the very least, they allow us to call a proxy informant. And this is the, the real challenge that we have. We have controls. We have Alzheimer's disease patients. And you can see we can always, uh, we can always get the informants uh, unable to reach informants 0% of the time in, in these cases. But even though it's a requirement for the test, we miss the proxy informant in 10 to 15% of our HIV patients. And when we do get the informant, most of the time they're a spouse for Alzheimer's disease or control, whereas for um, our HIV patients, they're a bit more distant. So not only are the patients having difficulty in trying to tell us what they're having uh, in terms of symptoms, we can't even get good information from their proxies because their proxies are not very proximal. They tend to be uh, more distant people. We've, we've had people we call and they say, I haven't seen him for three months. Um, how can I tell you how he's doing cognitively? So th these are challenges that we have um, in understanding what's going on with cognition in HIV patients. 
A little switch now to uh, something that I, I'm quite interested in, is in aging. Now, what proportion, this is a little different than the question I asked you before, C careful with the language. What proportion of HIV patients currently, what's the, the what, what pro proportion of HIV currently in the U.S. are over 50 years of age? What proportion are over 50 years of age now? Not new infections, but current. What? This has been uh, in the, in the uh, news a lot, so I suspect we'll get close to the answer, uh, very close to the answer. Yeah, so by 2015, it's estimated that 50% of the patients will be, and if you look at projections uh, from uh, the CDC, it looks like it'll be 2017, but 50% uh, of the population has already been over the age of 50 in the VA population in San in in California, for example, in Northern California, Kaiser, and a number of different organizations have already hit that mark. So we really do have an aging population uh, of no surprise. These data show you the, the, the rate at which the over 50 population is going up uh, dramatically, uh, principally because of use of antiretrovirals. We tend to think of this as a developing, I'm sorry, as a developed country phenomenon, but that could not be further from the truth. If you look here in some of the Southern Africa countries, they're already starting to see 15, 20% of their population over 50 years of age. And I, I've been asked to put together a module a couple years ago about how we manage aging in the African context. And I was surprised to hear about that and, and pleasantly surprised. But this is a worldwide phenomenon, not just occurring in the US. Um, most of these patients are um, already uh, infected when they turn the 50 age mark. Only a, a smaller fraction of these patients are new infections, but they, they may need some uh, different approaches uh, in the new infection versus those that are over 50. And principally, the, the people who age into the age of 50 may have survivor tendencies. And we've seen this in the population over 60. We've seen, in fact, that the, the median duration of HIV infection for some of these patients, for, for our cohort over 60, is, is about 23 years, quite a long time. All with histories of people who died, uh, all, uh, all with uh, peers that they know of who died. So there are true survival tendencies. And whether we can really inform what's going to happen with the epidemic by looking at the current snapshot of people who are older is, is unclear. Really what characterizes aging in many ways is heterogeneity. I like to think that people bring into their clinic a, a, a suitcase with their baggage. And as you get older, that, that's what you have. You've had bad responses to medications that could go on for a long ways. You have polypharmacy, where you're on multiple medications. And often, there's multimorbidity, which I clarify is different than comorbidity, in that when you start adding on multiple diseases at the same time, they begin to interact with each other. So the sum is more than just the simple sum of the comorbid illnesses. In our cohort over 60, for example, we find that the rate of cognitive impairment is still about 50%, not different than the cohort that was seen in the charter from younger populations. But the difference is that most of our older patients are quite adherent to medication, whereas in the charter group, a good 25 to 30% did not have suppressed virus. Uh, so we have a very uh, you know, adherent population. You would expect to see cognitive impairment that's lower, and yet we find a rate that's about the same. We also find more symptomatic impairment. And, and that doesn't surprise me terribly, because as I get older, I start having symptoms. And I think as patients get older, they're more aware, they're more careful about whether a small symptom of forgetting their keys means something more important. Uh, I've had patients tell me that when you're 20 or 30 and you forget your keys, it's just funny. 
when you're 50 or 60 and you forget where your keys are, you're alarmed. And, and uh, so I think patients are a little bit more uh, aware as they get older um, of their symptoms. We're finding that some of the interesting uh, correlates to cognitive impairment in the oldest population are comorbidities and, and risk factors that are associated with Alzheimer's disease, where, whereas uh, some of the more common uh, variables that you would expect are not so much. And this may be a factor that these patients are very well controlled for their, their virus, where the CD4 and the viral load no longer becomes the most important factor. Uh, interestingly, the CNS penetration effectiveness score uh, is almost counterintuitive in this population. It was similarly counterintuitive in our over uh, 50 population. And the charter cohort of over 1,000 patients designed to answer this question in some ways of whether the CNS penetration effectiveness score was useful. It didn't publish a paper yet. And, and, and so I, I have a lot of skepticism about the utility broadly of this uh, CNS penetration effectiveness score. And although I don't have any slides on it, this may be a good time to pause and just mention a couple things about the CPE. One is there have been two randomized studies now done to intensify patients with a, a higher CNS penetration score, and, and both of them failed. One, in fact, if you intensified with a higher CPE, you had worse outcomes. The other one failed to enroll, but in the small number of patients they enrolled, they were hard-pressed to find good signals that it was beneficial. So, this should lead us all to have a little bit of skepticism to, A, put people prophylactically on higher CNS penetrant regimens so that it protects the brain. No data to support that. And, and B, for patients who have this more chronic, fluctuating, they've been impaired for five years, they're okay, they're inefficient, there's really no data to change their regimen. And in fact, you may be causing more risk because they're, particularly if they're doing well on their existing regimen, don't have side effects. The caveat is, and you must be really careful about this, is that there are clear cases where there's either rapid progression or more uh, ominous signs on examination where we find escape where the CNS uh, is, is not well covered by these drugs and you do need to change. So it's a little bit of a mixed uh, bag and you have to have some awareness that there are cases where you do need to change antiretrovirals, but for the vast majority of patients you're seeing in the clinic, there, there aren't enough data to support that. I will also mention, just for the, the benefit of, of Danny Duick, that um, if you put patients on a, uh, a regimen that's more monocyte penetrant, so the, these are antiretrovirals where you um, where the, it, there's a better effect than monocytes in a petri dish, uh, we find that it correlates quite well with uh, better cognitive impairment. So there may be a mechanism in which trying to target the cells that traffic virus to the brain may be beneficial. I'm going to run out of time, so I've got to go right to the Alzheimer's disease. Um, so will my patients get Alzheimer's disease early? I don't know. Um, there, there's probably a, a multiple morbidity issue with aging and cognition where a lot of factors are contributing. One of these factors may well be neurodegenerative disorders, but they're really quite complex because there are a lot of other things going on, of which I think chronic immune activation for younger and older patients are important. But there's also cerebrovascular disease, which uh, can augment even Alzheimer's pathology or HIV pathology to cause more cognitive impairment. So it's quite a mixed bag. And although these data are a little bit aged now, they're a little bit older, you can see that there's a higher amyloid burden in brains of patients with longer duration of antiretroviral. This is a pathology study, of course. And also, if you look at the difference before and after uh, antiretroviral treatments were available, that the degree to which they see a higher grade of plaque burden is higher. 
So these two slides together tell us that the longer you're infected, and probably the effective antiretrovirals themselves may have an amyloidogenesis factor on the brain, which is quite worrisome. But to date, no one's really found the neuritic plaques that are typical of Alzheimer's disease. What we see instead is a diffuse accumulation of amyloid, which doesn't necessarily um, mean that these patients will develop the neuritic plaques in Alzheimer's disease, but certainly it's, it has a lot of people worried. These data out of uh, uh, St. Louis show uh, HIV-negative patients who, when you look at their CSF, they have biomarker evidence of risk for Alzheimer's disease. If you try to image them for this uh, amyloid, you find some signal being picked up. Whereas in an HIV patient of similar age, there's no, there's no pickup of amyloid at all. This can be now added to by a very small study, for which I don't have a slide, of only eight patients, of which half were cognitively impaired, done from the San Diego group, showing that if you're cognitively impaired with HIV, there may be a slight increase in the amount of amyloid that's in the brain. But that data needs to be proven a little bit more before we can, uh, we can take it as a take-home message. And then uh, we've, we've shown a, a couple times now with APOE4 that if you have an A4 allele, you do worse here in the blue bars on cognitive testing, possibly suggesting that there's a, there's a contribution from some pathways that are similar to Alzheimer's disease but we have to take this with some caution, too, because APOE4 has been associated with other outcomes, including cognitive problems with head injuries um, and so forth. So I added this slide last night because I, uh, it was pointed out to me um, as we were going through the slides that I, I really should have a little bit more of a positive note and uh, like a take-home message of what can I do for my patients right now. I have patients in my clinic that are a little bit loopy and I'm worried about them. What should I do? What can I encourage them to do? What, can I, uh, uh, what, what interventions can I make? Well, I think the biggest intervention, and, and no one should leave here thinking otherwise, is that if they're not on antiretrovirals, they should be. So having cognitive impairment in a patient with HIV is a clear indication that they need to be on antiretroviral treatment. And if they're on antiretroviral treatment, they need to be adherent to the treatment. And they have to have successful treatment with suppression of virus in plasma. And I, I think that probably captures 90 to 95% of what you need to do in, in uh, patients in the clinic. But that probably doesn't help you because the ones you're most worried about, you've already succeeded in doing that. Um, the next step would be, should I change their antiretrovirals? And I think I've answered that question for you. Uh, to a, a, a little bit of a degree, and if you have individual cases, catch me in the hall and I'd be happy to, to talk to you about it. I, I get referred these cases quite a bit, and sometimes I'll do a lumbar puncture to see if I can find virus in the CSF. Most of the time I don't. Um, I seldom will change antiretrovirals on patients, but sometimes I do. Certainly in more rapid cases, I worry quite a bit. Or if they have other neurologic signs, I worry quite a bit. And if I find imaging abnormalities, I worry quite a bit. So there are, there are some signals for me, um, and there are some times when you have to do that. What about using Aricept or Nemenda, drugs that we use for Alzheimer's disease? No data to support that. And in fact, in Alzheimer's disease, these drugs are really symptomatic uh, treatment. So you can help a little bit with the fluctuations in cognitive abilities in, in uh, patients with Alzheimer's disease will help with the fluctuation in, in HIV, it, it's possible. I don't know of any large studies that looked at Aricept, but Aricept is working on a specific symptomatic mechanism. It's not a, a pathologic treatment. It's actually trying to increase the amount of acetylcholine so there's more transmitter in the brain. And there's not a lot of good evidence that that's decreased in HIV. So this needs to be done. Exercise, absolutely. Every patient that comes in, I recommend exercise. I think it has a lot to do for their psyche, for depression, get them out of the house. 
I think it helps with cerebrovascular risk factors. I think there's good evidence for neurodegenerative syndromes that exercise can be beneficial, more and more emerging evidence. And I think it's just generally good for you with few risks. So uh, I, I really uh, uh, make that important. Cognitive stimulation information is starting to come out quite um, um, in trickles now. There are some at Croy, there's, uh, there's some publications coming out with formal cognitive stimulation. And where I go with this with my patients is the same place I go with my Alzheimer's patients. They, they come in and say, should I be doing Sudoku? Should I do an hour of Sudoku a day? Will it help me? And I, and I say, well, you know, maybe it'll help you, but you're going to spend all the time gained for your brain doing Sudoku. So do you really want to spend all that time doing something that you can't stand doing? What I would, what I would recommend you do is find something that's cognitively stimulating that you like to do. What, what, you know, go, to see, go to a course, learn about something, keep your brain active. Be involved in social environments. I'm not a big proponent for the computer programs at this time. That I think that the data for their, their ability to extend into the everyday environment is starting to emerge. There may be some, but we need a good head-to-head -head study where you're doing other forms of cognitive stimulation that are more typical of an everyday, uh, paired up with these more computer-based things to see if they're head-to-head they, -head, they do the same. And then, of course, addressing the comorbidities is critical, making people who are using drugs, uh, trying to address that, trying to address alcoholism, trying to address depression, trying to maintain cerebrovascular risk factors. Okay, quickly then, we need to uh, conclude. Hand is frequent despite, despite treatment. Asymptomatic impairment may not be all that asymptomatic. Comorbid uh, illnesses are important contributors, and there may not be enough data right now to know if our patients will be accelerated risk for Alzheimer's. So let's go back to the same questions here. What percentage of new infections in the US occur in patients who are over 50? Everybody did relatively well with this before, so see if we can improve upon it. Perfect. So the evidence would say that it's about uh, between 10 and 15% right now. And um, looks like most people have got into that area. HIV patients are at an accelerated risk for developing Alzheimer's disease. This is, again, another opinion piece. What do you think from what I've told you? Should we, uh, should we ask the NIHNBF to give us more money to study this problem? Please say yes. <laughs> so uh, I guess I convinced you otherwise. <laughs> Well, I, I think that they probably are, and I think it's uh, a little too early to tell. If you quadruple or multiply by 10 the risk for having Alzheimer's disease in your 55-year-old patient right now, if you increase their risk by tenfold as a population, you're still only going to see one case per 100, or two cases at most. So we just don't know. Um, in people who are 70 years of age, if you double their risk, we may see 5% risk. I recently had a, a lovely man die, um, 82 years of age, and his Alzheimer's was diagnosed, and he progressed to death within three years. So that, that's very rapid for an Alzheimer's patient. And we have pathology proving it was AD. So I, I do worry about it. Thank you very much. Thanks. We'll open it up for questions from the audience. Um, you mentioned the failure of the two Alzheimer's drugs that have been tried in patients with cognitive impairment. 
based on what we know about cognitive impairment, you also mentioned possibly, you know, thinking about monocyte active drugs. Are there other medications that people are considering that, you know, are more pathogenesis-based and less relying on what works for other diseases? Um, I, I can only say that from my, from what I know, no. I mean, people may have heard about minocycline as an anti-inflammatory, uh, probably having antiviral properties. Um, that has not panned out in clinical trials. Um, the, the CPE and uh, the monocyte effectiveness questions both, I think, need to be answered a little bit better. Uh, whether we intensify with uh, CNS penetrating regimens, I'm not sure whether the trials were particularly definitive because they had some limitations, but they certainly weren't uh, terribly compelling. Uh, Memantine was tried in HIV cognitive impairment and failed, although there was uh, some slight signal on spectroscopy, but I don't think that that's going to be followed. And I'm not aware of any Aricet studies to date, um, sm a small one, but not large enough to be meaningful. So. Okay, we'll go to the microphone. My question is in reference to um, where do we go from here. I'm trying to figure out if there's any data to support the use or if there's any role in the use of lutein and zeaxanthin supplementation for improving cognitive impairment. I, I didn't hear lutein what you said and... Yeah, lutein and zeaxanthin, they're looking at uh, these are supplements that help to improve supposedly cognitive impairment. Any thoughts on that? No, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I would imagine there aren't any trials, so I, I, I would feel fairly comfortable with that. Uh, the, there are a number of supplements that are being used in Alzheimer's disease by patients, and I think in some ways because we, we're not moving forward with any disease-based uh, processes. But they, they haven't had good supporting evidence in any kind of randomized trials. We tend not to recommend those, but what I tend to do is look at the harms that could be caused by these. and whether the harms outweigh the risks, I mean, whether the harms are, are larger for the patient. And often the, the, the biggest harm is the purse, you know, how much people will pay for these. So in the lack of good evidence, I don't tend to recommend them. And a related question, what about the use of fish oil? Should we be encouraging people to use fish oil for its protective benefits? For the brain, I don't think there's great data, but I think uh, there are better data for the heart. Um, it, it doesn't tend to be as, as dangerous if you're getting it from a reputable uh, source. Um, I don't think that there are good data for the brain. Make sure you're getting a source that doesn't contain a lot of mercury and uh, just getting it from a reputable. And then there's a, a case question. I'm going to try and simplify it so it's not so specific, but somebody that they were concerned about the uh, patient becoming more withdrawn, Parkinson-like syndrome, they changed the antiretroviral regimen and he became less withdrawn, but he became more violent and paranoid. Is this a manifestation of his HIV infection? Did we alter it with the antiviral treatment? Or is this some other syndrome that you're aware of? Yeah, it's possible. Uh, I mean, certainly the change in Parkinsonism I've seen in patients that we've changed antiretrovirals. Um, the patient I just spoke of, when he presented to me, he was demented and he walked slowly. He had very little facial mimia, and he was not on antiretrovirals. And when we treated him with antiretrovirals, those things went away. And uh, but he remained very amnestic, and, uh, and ultimately had Alzheimer's disease as well. So I think that that the, the, the development of the paranoia, I think, uh, hard to to know for certain. Um, I, I've not heard so much about the emergence of paranoia with with treatment, but I I can't say that I would rule it out. 
in, in that type of a case, I would probably try to find out if we've suppressed the virus in CSF. Um, those cases bother me a little bit when there's a lot of motor problems as well as cognitive problems. When you have that triad, particularly if it's a little bit more progressive, um, I tend to tap those people. And, and I've done it both ways. I, I've either tapped them, changed their antiretrovirals, and then I often have to tap them again. That is more scientific to me. I feel like I'm doing the right thing. But um, empiric works as well, where you make an empiric change and then you tap them afterwards to make sure that you've suppressed. Because it's possible you didn't, and, and that the paranoia is a manifestation of, of uncontrolled HIV in the CNS. Uh, which I, I would buy a little bit more than and that you, you've had better control. Um, it could be that you just kind of shuffle the deck a little bit uh, for that person. Now, the other problem about tapping, I'm, I'm sorry, but um, many labs won't do it. You, you may say, I'm going to do CSF, and, and my, you send it to the lab, and they're like, you know, what? Uh, and, and, you know, just tell them you'll accept the little disclaimer on the bottom that says FDA has not approved this to be done on CSF. Because it's exactly done the same way as it's done in, 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 uh, in blood. So um, that will help you. The caveat also is that they won't go very low levels. And there's a little bit of data that even trying to suppress the lower levels may be beneficial. But you'll at least find out if they have this sky-high escape. Um, anything that's higher than plasma would be an escape. All right, well, th that concludes the questions. Thank you, Victor. Thank you very much. We're now going to break for lunch. We're a little bit behind schedule, but we plan to start at 1.20 so that we can keep up and get you out of here before rush hour. So please reconvene here at 1.20, and lunch is served out in the foyer ABC room. <laughs>